0: Happy Wednesday, listeners. This is our first Wednesday release of The Learning Curve. Very excited for that, but not that I don't miss Gerard, who is off, you know, enjoying a well-deserved vacation, but it is finally my turn to co-host with the amazing Carrie McDonald, who has not only been a guest on this show, but has, has heroically co-hosted several times. Really, really happy to have you here, Carrie. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Kara. It's so great to be able
1: to co-host with you this time.
0: Heck yeah. I mean, we don't always need- <laughs> They're okay once in a while. They serve a purpose. But no, it, it's really great. And like, so I've been really excited to have a little banter with you about this moment because for so many of us, I've, I've, I've complained a little bit about the word pod before, but it feels like can't escape it anywhere, whether I'm at work or having socially distanced cocktails on somebody's back porch. It's all anybody is talking about if they've got kids or are around kids or think about kids. And here we have you, somebody who, you know, has literally written the book <laughs> on, on homeschooling and what it looks like. I mean, you're sort of having a moment here, right? I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your take um, on, on what's going on and in uh, what are you seeing in terms of pod formation? What are you seeing in terms of you know, states, governors, policies that are either encouraging, discouraging? Just talk to me.
1: Well, I mean, it's just a really fascinating moment in American education. Of course, so much disruption in all of our lives and in terms of how we live and learn, um, a lot of turmoil regarding back to school plans that continue to be uncertain or less than satisfying to various parents. Uh, So there is just quite a bit of Um, of uncertainty. But with that, I think innovation, I think parents are realizing that in many cases, it's up to them to figure out what they want this fall to look like for their kids. They're sort of taking matters into their own hands as maybe school start dates get delayed or there's uncertainty around whether schools will will reopen in person or remote only and so on. Um, And so that's why we are seeing really a huge growth in um, the number of families opting out of their district school for independent homeschooling, as well as the rise in these pandemic pods. Uh, And I've been writing a lot of of this at my work at FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, um, really tracing this trend. So these pandemic pods are groups of families coming together uh, to allow their children to have some social interaction, to facilitate a curriculum. It's either parents taking turns facilitating a curriculum or pooling their resources to hire an educator, a college student, or someone else who can supervise that work. Um, Sometimes these pandemic pods are Uh, groups of families who are getting together to do remote learning as a group. So they're still registered uh, in their local school district or in a private school, and they're just getting together to do that remote learning uh, so that it's not so isolating. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And in other cases, it's families who decided to take the leap into independent homeschooling to really provide maximum freedom and flexibility. And in fact, um, I just wrote an article last week highlighting the new Gallup poll that just came out showing that that homeschooling rate has doubled um, from last year to this year with 10 percent of families saying that they're planning to homeschool this year. And this was independent homeschooling that the pollsters specifically um, use the language of homeschooling being separate from and enro- being enrolled in a, in a private or public school. So these were families who really are doing this independent homeschooling. And I think we'll just continue to see this sort of expansion um, of families searching for schooling alternatives, creating schooling alternatives, and entrepreneurs stepping in to meet that demand
0: to create uh, really innovative new learning models. I Yeah, it, it is. It's fascinating. And I so here's a question, though, that I'm grappling with, I think so many of us are grappling with this, I know I'm grappling with it in my own work, is, is of course, the equity issue. And I'm really curious to know how how you see this. And What I, what I mean, of course, is that certain families either can um, afford to homeschool, meaning that one parent can can give up their work, possibly, or, or maybe they can afford to do something that requires an outlay of cash in order to have a truly qualified teacher. I mean, I know a lot of families, quite frankly, that are paying a lot of money, not even to have like somebody with teaching experience, but just as we said before, somebody sort of monitoring learning while the kids remain online with the district at this time. Um, are you seeing anything, any promising practices in terms of like how we ensure that the families that wanna do this, but, but don't have the means can, can have access?
1: Right. So a couple of things there. First, it's, it's important to note, and I was glad to see the New York Times um, bring this up in an article a couple of weeks ago, that general homeschooling prior to the pandemic, so, you know, before everyone was sent home, um, you saw that the overall U.S. homeschool population was less affluent than average um, so this idea that it's more kind of privileged families that are choosing homeschooling, I think it, it's important to note that it's actually less mm-hmm. affluent families who are who are doing this. That being said, of course, there are of course these logistical challenges and economic challenges for families who are figuring out how to manage this back to school time. Um, so in some of these pods, you know, it's families pooling their resources to hire a teacher, but in other cases. It's um, taking turns with facilitating a curriculum or sharing uh, caregiving that, you know, is it could be no cost to families Um, and it could be a process of inviting people into the pod and allowing them to contribute in whatever way they can. So if they have to work all week and can't be on site for the children, um, maybe another parent has the flexibility to do that. And the parent that's working all week can contribute in some other way. And so I think there is that Mm -hmm. piece. But I'm sure as we'll get to, you know, in this general conversation is it's really a prime moment for education choice, and particularly education savings accounts that would allow uh, all families to have access to tax funding to um, allocate towards these pandemic pods or to virtual schooling or homeschooling materials or any other Uh, schooling alternative. Um, And that is a way of really ensuring uh, equal access to this.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Well, I know that um, you've got a great story of the week, too, that's sort of related to this, right? You know, this is really
1: great. This was last week in the New York Times, in the real estate section of all things.
0: Uh, an article <laughs> Make called, uh, "Education Real Estate." There we go. <laughs> uh,
1: an article called "Parents Join Forces to Rethink Back to School," and it was a great article about this pandemic pod moment, about families getting together uh, to allow their children to learn in small groups. Some of the families it highlighted in the article were doing this remote learning as a pod. So they were, again, still connected to their district school. Uh, Other families had opted out and were doing their own kind of private podding. Um, But it was a great article in showing just the different ways that families have um, sort of redesigned their homes or reimagined some of their home spaces to allow for not only these pandemic pods, but also virtual learning. So one one, uh, parent talking about redesigning this walk-in closet in the home to allow their older child to do virtual <laughs> uh, schooling in a, in a quieter space and then renovating a barn or even a tree house for one of these pandemic pods. So just a really uh, sweet article about the ways that families are trying to manage um, figuring out how to make their homes not only now workplaces but learning
0: spaces. Yeah, I love it. I mean, and uh, who isn't a fan of like the good, uh, zoom closet slash office space and, and, and (laughs) shout out to my friend Ron Mattis, who, um, who, who has, I think one, um, on one of the zoom calls I was participating in like best, best pandemic closet office, but this is, this is pretty, um, cool stuff at a tough time as parents work out how this is all going to work for them. Um, I too have a story of the week and this one is a little, it's a shift from pod, but it's a, it's, it's a shift from, talking about homes, too, although I, sh- you're making me think I should think about how to redesign my home, um, although my kids are apparently going back face-to-face, fingers crossed. We will see. Um, but this article that I have is from Education Next, and um, I think a couple weeks back, we talked about some Ed Next poll, result- poll results that showed that, by and large, in the spring, Um, parents of charter school students and to some extent private school students as well reported higher rates of satisfaction with the spring learning experience which of course um, remote learning I mean which of course caused people to sort of dig into like okay so charters are a little bit easier to look at than private schools which I think nationally um, you know there are more of them and um, uh, we've, we've got a lot of other data on charters. Um, but so people have been asking this question like, so, okay, if it worked, when it worked, how did it work? Like, what made the difference? And so this is an article um, by Greg Benorik in, in Education Next. And um, You know, he points to a few different things. And I I just want to, there was something that stuck out to me in the first paragraph of this, you know, recognizing that, especially remember in March when we all sort of realized what was actually happening and we made this switch, you know, and and of course there were millions and millions of families without high-speed internet access and didn't have devices and districts and charters and everybody was scrambling to get these in the hands of families. But then we have this complicated problem as well of teachers who, didn't know. If you even had an online learning platform or, or, or your district or charter went to find one, teachers had to negotiate how to even work on it. And then, you know, that resulted in many cases in teachers working, along with, I will say, there are other factors such as collective bargaining agreements that contributed to this, but teachers working in some cases just two hours a day was what's been reported. But charter schools um, on the whole, not every charter school, just seem to do a lot better with the pivot. Um, And they, you know, as many have said, they were more nimble in sort of making this happen. Um, One of the things that's so fascinating to me and it's highlighted in this article is that parents reported that their schools in that charter schools were reaching out to them on a very regular basis. In some case, every morning we had examples of charter networks realizing off the bat that they would have to start the day with sort of a morning needs assessment. And that means not just everything from like, how's how's your kiddo doing with yesterday's lesson, but also like, what is it that's going on in your family? What do you need? What's what's preventing you, what's preventing your student from being able to access um, learning? And that's huge, right? That's yeah. absolutely huge. This ability to have this one-to-one relationship. And then there are a couple of other points. The second one they highlight is that a lot of charters manage to recreate the structure of the regular school day, which in many cases involved a lot of synchronous learning. Uh, this finding leaves me wondering if that's going to actually look the same in the spring, because I think that a lot of people who have engaged in virtual education know that it can evolve over time and that you know, there's nothing wrong at all with synchronous learning, and it works well for some students. But there might be other ways to do it as teachers become more and more acclimated to said format. Um, And then another great one that um, just highlight here is that they found that these charters that got really high marks from parents really took a team approach to teaching and, and held true to the curriculum. So, you know, I think in a lot of places it was this idea, I know I had these conversations with my kids' teachers of they they really wanted to advance learning, not just sort of stop the bleed, so to speak. And it seems like that's what a lot of really high-performing charters were able to do. And in many cases, what they would say is like, who is our most experienced, most effective math teacher? And then record that person Giving a lesson that every kid at that level would take, and then you could go ahead and break out into smaller groups for one on one help, etc., so that you didn't have to replicate, which is really fascinating right. when you think about the power of learning this way, right? You didn't have to replicate that lesson with five different teachers and maybe maybe there one or two of them are, are able to deliver it in a more effective way than the others. So these are just some of the findings um, that we get from the charter sector. I think that this is really worth a look. Like I said, it's Education Next. They've got a new poll that came out recently, which I'm sure we'll be talking about soon. Um, but as a proud charter school board chair um, a, of a network that I know has been working incredibly hard to make sure our hybrid approach goes well in the fall, uh, this one made me pretty happy. Well, it's really
1: yeah, it's really great just to see this charter school satisfaction um, when education was so disrupted, when uh, you know, we were all sort of scrambling to make things work last spring. I think it's interesting too, that Gallup poll that I mentioned that came out last week talking about um, the number of parents planning to homeschool this year doubled from last year. It also found that there was an increase in the number of parents um, planning to send their children to charter schools. In fact, Charter schools and homeschools were the only um, two sectors in the education space that saw increases over last year. Uh, Public school actually declined from 83 percent to 76 percent in terms of where parents would be sending their kids this year. So uh, good to see that there really is still a lot of satisfaction from families in the charter school sector.
0: Yeah. And maybe we'll have to see states. I mean, I know you and I are both here in Massachusetts. They might have to talk about raising some charter school caps. Just I hope increases. so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good. Good luck with that here. But, <laughs> so, uh, so coming up, we are actually going to talk to somebody that I can't believe we haven't had yet on the learning curve, but I know I'm really excited to speak with her. And it is former chancellor of D.C. Public Schools, former CEO of Students First, Michelle Rhee. And we're going to be talking to her right after this. I can't wait. We're so excited to have with us today, Michelle Rhee. She was the founder and CEO of Students First, a bipartisan grassroots movement to improve America's schools. Launched in 2010, Students First helped change education policies in dozens of states. In 2007, Washington, D.C., Mayor Adrian Fenty appointed Michelle Chancellor of the D.C. Public Schools. And many of you absolutely know her from her tenure there because under her leadership, the districts and its teachers union approved a groundbreaking contract that dramatically reformed how D.C. schools operate, streamlined the system's central office, and freed up more resources to go directly into classrooms. D.C. students have since experienced historic academic success and growth. In her 2013 book, Radical, Fighting to Put Students First, uh, Michelle describes his experiences, and it's a widely acclaimed book. She graduated from Cornell University and earned a master's degree from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Michelle, thank you so much for joining Carrie and me today on Learning Curve.
2: Absolutely, it's my pleasure.
0: So, you know, I think that um, a lot of our listeners obviously know who you are. So, hopefully, we can ask you some questions here that they haven't really heard the answers to before. Well, we're gonna try and do that and maybe get a little bit of commentary on this very interesting current moment. But let's start out for folks with, um, with just sort of like where, where you started in all of this because you first started um, as so many excellent young teachers and now you know policy um, folks do, working for Teach for America and you had a liberal arts education. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and also what you see or if you see um, sort of a non-traditional TFA-style background as something that can be a benefit to to schools and systems?
2: Sure. So I, um, coming out of of Cornell, uh, joined Teach for America, taught for three years um, through the program in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, had a life-changing experience, as I think many uh, Teach for America core members do, and then just sort of dedicated the rest of my career to to public education after that. Um, I you know I, I think that having been in education since that time in lots of different roles, um, you know, I, I think that programs like Teach for America that bring non-traditional candidates into the field um, can be incredibly valuable. I think anything, that um, we can do to broaden the, the net and make sure that we have as many different sources as possible from which we're recruiting great people to enter into education um, is an important thing. I think it's it's gotta be tempered. You know, some people sort of like to say that Teach for America and programs like that are the end all be all. And um, you know, everyone who's who, who joins those programs is, is great and it's gonna be wonderful. Um, And, you know, that's not the case. Um, Like every program, you have some folks who are incredibly successful, others who are not. Um, So I think it's less of a a silver bullet solution um, uh, and more of one piece to a very complicated puzzle um, of how do we make sure that we have the the best people serving our kids uh, in education. Um, You know, and I do think that obviously the detractors of TFA often Point to the fact that it's a two-year commitment, and people come in, then they leave the system, and um, and that's you know that kind of turnover is not good. Um, and while certainly there are some core members who follow that trajectory, I think over the the you know decades now that Teach for America has been in existence, um, we've seen that that is not the case uh, with a lot of folks, uh, and that. Even folks, people who, uh, you know, put in their two years and then go into other fields, whether it be medicine or law or finance, they always have, having had that experience of being a public school teacher, it really influences the kind of law they practice or, uh, you know, where where they practice medicine and who they focus on. And I think that's an incredibly important thing. But also we're seeing that Teach for America alum, are now you know, leading school districts, uh, state departments of education, um, you know, obviously uh, at the school level, many of them are still in the classroom. Uh, and so I do think that it is a very important source of talent for the education landscape generally. Yeah, I
0: think we could probably do, and somebody probably has, or if they haven't, they should, an entire podcast on sort of the, you know, the influence of Teach for America in the past two decades. And to your point, a lot of emerging, not even emerging, a lot of um, stalwart leaders ha- having come up through TFA. So as much as I'd love to continue to talk about this, we have you for only a short time. And I we, we have to ask you sort of about, you know, what, what most people know you for is your work in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and in one of the, you know, and it's such a, such a wonderful story um, of what of what has happened in DC, although, you know, there's still, I'm sure a lot of work to do. It's come absolutely a long way, but you've had a special lens into urban education and urban school districts and how they work. Um, and, and you made some really important inroads in in, in a major urban school district. This, this moment that we're in <laughs> um, uh, has absolutely revealed deeper weaknesses in our public education systems at large, I was actually having a, um, a call with some friends last night, um, suburban parents who were very upset about what's happening in their current system where they feel they pay these high property taxes, et cetera. And I made the point to them, which I don't know was very well received. I said, yeah, what what a lot of us are feeling right now is what a lot of parents who've never really had choices or or who who have been felt trapped in a system that wasn't working for them had felt for a really long time. So we're in this weird moment where I think parents and others are seeing that the systems don't always serve all kids or even the majority of kids in some circumstances. I'm really curious as to what you're seeing here. I'm sure this speaks to your work with, with your current organization, Students First. And and I, I have to ask you to, um, to talk a little bit since you were able to uh, do so much work with teachers unions about, about what you're seeing right now, um, not only in Large urban districts, but what's going on with the interplay between what the unions are representing writ large, and and what districts can or are willing to deliver?
2: Yeah, well, I it, mean, I certainly it was like twenty questions. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Um, it's certainly a complicated time. I think that one of the things that will come out of this experience for uh, this country um, and for sort of kids, parents, and and school districts more generally, which I think is a very positive thing, is that there will be a greater appreciation for teachers and how difficult uh, the job is that they have every day. Uh, I've talked to loads of my friends who have Little ones who are, you know, incredibly accomplished. Lots of them are in the education fields, not, not necessarily as teachers, you know, but who are in nonprofit work, et cetera. And they've said to me, "Oh my gosh, I try to do thirty minutes of this, and I'm exhausted. I have no idea." Amen. How to Do this okay <laughs> every day. Um, and so I think that that kind of acknowledgement and appreciation for how difficult the job of teaching is. Hopefully, will be one positive outcome uh, of of what happens. I think that um, you know it's it's interesting because I think the other thing to me that is apparent if you look at how this country has responded um, to the the COVID crisis as it pertains to education versus other countries, um, it's really clear that there is not enough prioritization uh, of education and, and the education system in this country. So, you you know, you compare us to um, countries like Denmark that opened their schools right away, but they were able to do that because it was the country's number one priority, right? Making sure the kids were back in school was the, 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 the government's um, sort of uh, main focus. And because of that, they put a tremendous amount of effort Into, um, you know, hiring more teachers so they could have lower teacher to student ratios, and they could socially distance. Um, You know, they even built, you know, temporary uh, classrooms um, for that same purpose. Um, They they just did a a, a lot of things to make sure that everyone knew that this was the most important thing they could do as a country. So it came, you know, before even parents going back to work. Uh, It came before, you know. Reopening restaurants and sporting events and that sort of thing, and they were able to do it effectively because of that. And I don't think um, that we have seen the same kind of focus on um, as a nation on okay, how are we going to make sure that that you know this is uh, the number one thing that you know uh, you know of importance that that we can do as a country. Um, and I think because of that, because of the lack of sort of resources and attention paid through this, a lot of school districts and state departments of education have been left scrambling with a lot of, not a lot of sort of guidance and, um, uh, resources, uh, on which to be able to put together effective plans. Um, and so, you know, I would hope that that would also be a, a wake up call to, um, citizens and parents everywhere is, You know, if we're going to, we can't just give lip service and say, oh, you know, children are our future. And it's so important, um, you know, that they get a great education if we're not willing to put our, you know, our our money where our mouth is. And we're not willing to sort of walk that walk and say, you know, other things may have to wait for a while while we figure out what we're going to do with kids and their education. Um, So I think that's another sort of clear uh outcome of all of this um, has just been that this is not not a not a focus in this country as much as it should be.
0: Have you um, seen or can you locate a place that you think has gotten gotten anything right or something right or something that you'd like to
2: highlight? Yeah, you know, because I'm not in the education space any longer, um, I, I don't know as much about you know the the specifics. Um, I think this is an area where, Charter schools, because they are more nimble, because a number of them had um, been sort of more technologically savvy and who had, um, I think, developed a lot more both on the teacher side and on the student side in terms of how they wanted to utilize technology effectively for planning purposes, for, um, you know, instructional uh, strategies, et cetera, have, I've seen, you know, I've heard anyways, that, that a lot of them are, um, uh, acclimating to this, uh, situation a little bit easier. Um, but I, I, you know, again, I think it's been tough just because there, there hasn't really been a roadmap, um, for, for people and, um, you know, uh, it, it seems like uh, we're sort of in this um, place where it's every district for themselves, every state for yeah. themselves. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes it hard, honestly, because it 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 makes people feel like they're, you know, starting from scratch, um, and there's not a lot to go on, which is a really tough situation.
1: Hi, Michelle, this is Carrie McDonald. Uh, so glad to be talking with you today. I'm followed your career in D.C. and and some of the amazing work that you've done. So I'm just thrilled to be able to talk to you today. Thank you. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you've had so many successes with the D.C. public schools, certainly saw the growth in NAEP scores, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, sometimes called the Nation's Report Card. Um, Those demonstrate reforms you initiated as chancellor of the D.C. public schools um, and delivered some really historic results for kids there. But what part of your legacy at the D.C. public schools are you most proud of? And maybe it was test scores. My guess is there was more to it than that. Uh, And and sort of as a corollary, what what was the most difficult part of that job?
2: Yeah, Um, I mean, I think that there is a lot uh, that we were able to accomplish. I think if I were to sum it up in one sort of phrase or sentence, it would be, that we showed what was possible within a relatively short period of time that you can dramatically um, change culture, uh, the culture of the you know central office, um, the, the orientation that people have to what's most important, which is you know kids and making sure that they're getting what they need. Um, and that when you have that kind of focus then you're going to see a significant increase in, Student achievement levels, and that those changes, when made, can result in um, sustained growth, which is one of the things that I think people have been most surprised about with the DC story is just that it wasn't, you know, a two or four year blip, but this is now more than 10 years of very consistent um, growth that we've seen. So I think that, you know, generally is what I'm most proud of. I think when you get to more specifics, we're certainly um, proud of the teacher uh, evaluation and, and performance pay system that we put in place. You know, when I first got to D.C., one of my first meetings with with George Parker, who was the teachers union president at the time, he said to me, I you know I've read all of your your work. Uh, you're, you, know, you put out a lot of reports and I know that you're going to make you want to make these really big changes. And I just want to tell you that it's going to cost you. Right. He said. <laughs> we are, T- D.C. teachers are the lowest paid teachers in the region. We should be the highest paid. And I said, you're absolutely right. I agree. So at least we we have the same goal. Um, and now that is the case. Teachers in D.C. are the highest paid teachers in the region. And I think we've done a tremendous amount to ensure that the highest performing teachers are staying in the system. Um, so I'm proud of that. And then, you know, things I think that People talk about less, but but are just as important, you know, making sure that, for example, more dollars are going down to the classroom. When I started in D.C., we had a $1 billion budget, and of that budget, only $400 million of, of that was going to the schools, mm-hmm. um, which was just nuts, right? You have the majority of the money being spent by kind of a central office bureaucracy, um, and being able to flip that and really making sure that you're making the central office nimble, uh, efficient, effective, uh, and you're pushing more of the, the resources down to uh, closer to where the, the, the students are was hugely important and I think had a, a tremendous impact as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like maybe, maybe you're maybe like you're saying that that it's the these sort of bureaucratic challenges. I wonder if that was some of the more
2: difficult parts of the job. Um, I mean, I think, it's a nice way to sort of frame it as like, what was more difficult? I think I would say, you know, what, what, what did we not succeed at? Right. Mm-hmm. Where, what, where, were our failures? And we had uh, plenty of those as well. I think the one area that we really didn't make progress in that was commensurate with the sort of effort that we put in was around kind of community, um, input and engagement and buy-in to what we were doing and I think a lot of that was because I was super naive when I took that job on and I thought well if we just work really hard and we do the right thing and we, um, we produce results then people will love those results and they'll want you know to see all this continue and I think that uh, because of that I was not as effective at explaining what we were doing and why we were doing it. And, you know, really kind of laying out for people the specifics. Um, And so because I didn't do that communication particularly well, I think people who were opposed to what we were doing kind of, they created a narrative and, and, you know, sort of filled the void. And then I was sort of left scrambling afterwards. And I think that really negatively impacted Mm -hmm. how the community felt. Uh, at least, you know, some, some sections of the community, how they felt about, um, the reforms. And so, you know, we tried a lot of different things and I think we never really, um, we never really were able to crack the nut on how to do that well. Um, and I always say that today, like, because, you know, lots of people say, well, you know, your experience shows that you, you just can't bring people along. And I, I always, Say no, uh, just because we weren't able to figure out doesn't mean that you know it's not doable. Um, it's just that you know we tr- we tried the wrong things as far as for as hard as we did try, um, you know we just weren't able to sort of make those connections. And I think that since then, um, you know I think Kaya, uh did a great job uh, at that. I think other school districts have have tried with more success to sort of figure out that formula of how you balance making really significant changes and, you know, being aggressive about that, but also making sure that folks understand why why you're doing it.
1: Mm. Well, just some amazing accomplishments there. Seems like the successes far outweighed the setbacks, Uh, Just great work in the D.C. public schools. Maybe if we could just end on a 30,000-foot view of you know, here we are in COVID-19, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but we're, you know, seeing this dramatic transformation in American education, um, schools and districts being radically decentralized with virtual schooling and homeschooling and pandemic pods and microschools, that whole thing. Uh, You know, what do you think about the future of education, both sort of during the pandemic and then beyond? Yeah, I mean,
2: I I think that, Hopefully, one of the things that it um, it shows is that one we we've got to be um, more nimble and flexible in terms of um, you know how we're delivering education because uh, it you know, circumstances might might call for this to go on way longer than anybody um, would have imagined at the outset, and so how we're able to do this effectively. Um, is going to be really important, and we can't just sort of rely on the old systems and strategies that we always have. And so, kind of that that um, ability to kind of you know change things on a dime and and be really innovative, I think, is important. Um, and then I think the other thing is is really going to be um, the fact that different different things work for different kids, right? Which is one of like my my main arguments always for why we should have choice um, in the system is that and you know it sounds like some of the folks on this phone are, are parents and so when you're a parent you know this you know one, what works for one of your kids really well might may be an abject failure for another kid, right? Um and so you you have to be able to uh, craft Uh, a program or uh, go to a school or be in a classroom that works for your particular student. And um, so having options and having the ability for parents to understand what's going on, um, see the impact that it's having on kids and then making choices that they feel um, is gonna best serve their kid, I think will be brought to light uh, even more during Mm -hmm. this time. Um, so hopefully those will be some of the positives that, that come out of this, that will help to shape where education goes in the future.
1: Right. Sort of this big disruption, but also great opportunity. And like yeah. you
2: said, opportunities for more
1: individualized education for each child. So just really fascinating insights, Michelle. I'm so glad uh, we had this chance to talk. Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: Yeah. And Michelle, before we let you go, I have one more sort of more personal question, since as you mentioned, we could be in this thing for a while. Is there one thing during this stay at home quarantine (laughs) that has brought you joy or like one new thing that you've learned? I, for example, I, am not a sourdough starter person, but you know, I've done a lot more bike riding and anything like that, that you could point to that you've,
2: that you've liked about this whole ordeal. (laughs) Um, well, I have, uh, two older kids and, you know, interestingly like, people always say that, you know, uh, kids when they're younger need their moms more. I have two daughters who are actually older. And I think my philosophy now that I um, am a new empty nester is that kids actually need you the older they are. Um, And so for me, less travel and just being able to spend more time uh, with my kids uh, has been uh, the joy of all of this. And my uh, older daughter, who's now 21 and a senior at Harvard, um, dug up. uh, So when we were in D.C., she reminded me, we always used to um, play this game on her Wii called Just Dance uh and oh yeah i'll <laughs> dug this out and now there's an app for it and you can get on your iphone so every night we you know pull up these old school songs that were popular back in the uh early 2000s and we <laughs> <do> <laughs> just to like keep in shape um so that was uh that that's probably been my my one kind of uh funny thing that has come from 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 being stuck at home that's a good one.
0: This mother of uh, my youngest is still like a three major, so looking forward to looking <laughs> forward to understanding that they still need you when they're twenty one. That's amazing. So <laughs> I,
2: oh, I have now an eighteen year old and a twenty one year old, and they're probably more like mom needy and focused right now than they <laughs> were when they were. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually amazing. Yeah,
0: fantastic. Well, as Carrie said, thank you so much for joining. It's been a
2: pleasure, and we hope to have you back again sometime soon. Absolutely. I would love to. Thanks so much. Thanks, Michelle. Take care.
0: Okay. After that excellent conversation with Michelle Reeve, we are back, as always, with the Tweet of the Week. This one from our friend, Neil McCluskey. And um, he says, it's the year of school choice. A silver lining, and we, we we talked about this at the outset, Carrie, a silver lining to COVID would be if it made the public a lot more aware of the need for hashtag school choice. And it sounds like according to what you've been writing and what we've all been reading, Carrie, that he is absolutely onto something here that the public is becoming a little bit more aware. What do you think?
1: I completely agree. I think parents are recognizing that there are a lot of different options for their children's education and they will continue to become interested in and demand more education choice. Uh, I'd also recommend a great blog post that Neil McCluskey has up at the Cato uh, Institute site called a pod for every child, where he talks about these pods and how they could be Accessible to all families, uh, particularly through the use of education savings accounts.
0: Yeah, doing good stuff there. Fantastic. Well, Carrie, thanks so much for spending time with me this week. This Gerard can go on vacation you know, whenever he <laughs> wants. We'll let him take it. Well, and and we can have the the like female power hour of the learning curve. Absolutely, this, this <laughs> is so a great much time fun to spend time yeah. with you. Awesome. Sure. Well, listen, thanks, Kara. Next week we are going to have um, Jay Green and Jason Bedrick. They're out with their new book. I think Jason actually talked to us about this on a prior podcast, but the book is finally out. Um, Jay Green is the Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. And Jason Bedrick is, of course, the Director of Policy for Ed Choice. So until then, listeners, have a great week. Stay safe. Ciao.